On this edition of the Scott Thompson Show podcast, with me, Scott Radley, sitting in for Scott Thompson today, we're talking to Eleanor Harvey, who is just back from Tokyo. She was fencing in the Olympics. You want to know what it's like in the athlete's village for real? She's going to tell you. Uh, We're talking about travel, since people probably are starting to think about a winter vacation, even though it's quite nice out right now. But what can you do when cases of COVID and the variants are popping up in big numbers in many of the travel hotspots? We'll talk about that. Police and technology. There's some interesting tools out there, one in particular that we're going to talk about, but they offer conundrums, conundra, whatever. They offer challenges. We're going to talk about what those might be. And the incoming head of the Canadian Medical Association, uh, her group and the Canadian Nursing Association want uh, mandatory vaccines for healthcare workers. Good idea. Why do they want this? We'll talk about it all. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Scott Thompson Show here on 900 CHML. Thanks for being with us. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson. Boy, an exciting day at the Olympics. There's been a bunch for Canada, a bunch of exciting days. I mean, the whole pool, the swimming team, the women's swimming team, fantastic. And our judo team has done well and a bunch of others. And then today, Andre DeGrasse winning gold in the 200 meters. First time since Percy Williams in 1928. That is, that's a long wait for another 200 meter gold medal. That's a long wait, but he did it and fantastic this morning. And the best part about this was because it was, I think, the last event on the track schedule in Tokyo and the time difference and everything else, most people here, it wasn't four in the morning, it was five to nine, so that most people probably got to watch it, which was uh, which was nice. Somebody else or somebody from the city, we've, we've got a number of athletes from Hamilton in the area who have been over competing in Tokyo, Mackenzie Hughes, the golfer, and Kia Nurse, the basketball player, and uh, volleyball players and Heather Bansley, the beach volleyball player from Waterdown, and among them, Eleanor Harvey, who is a fencer, lives in the Westdale area, went to Westdale. Um, in her second Olympics, was there competing last week and is just back from Tokyo. Joins us now. Eleanor, welcome home. Hi. Welcome home. I'm, I'm, have you got your time sorted out yet? Do you know what's up and what's down at this point? Oh, not really. <laughs> <laughs> I will say... Eleanor is not only a world-class, obviously, fencer, but probably the only person in the Olympics who once upon a time stood on a street corner in a fluffy Easter bunny outfit and handed out candies to get people to go into a store. I I don't know of any others. Do you? No, you always uh, always remember that little detail of my past. (laughs) I do. It's, I, I just think it's, you know, we don't know necessarily where all the Olympians come from, but it always seems like, you know, they sort of emerge from the smoldering rock or something into these Adonises. And, and you know what? They're, they're normal people who do normal things. Yeah, that's for sure. Including, you know, dressing up as a Easter bunny, giving out chocolate on the street to strangers. Honestly, that was a bit more nerve wracking than fencing at the Olympics. Come on. Really? Equal. Pretty equal. Pretty equal. And and one other thing that I bet, uh, now maybe other people did this in the COVID situation. We wrote about this uh, a while back. You had to take extreme measures when you couldn't get to the club to, to train and fenced against an inanimate object, an inanimate person that you had built out of parts in your garage. Anyone else that you've heard do that? Yeah, like all the fencers were doing that. Um, we basically we had to still practice our point control and we needed some body like thing to, to practice hitting. So 
most fencers ended up building dummies and we did a lot of zoom workouts so we would like do footwork and uh, practice hitting the dummies in different ways and just working out at home in every creative way that you could imagine you um as i said you are obviously back in hamilton or, or in canada at least i don't know if you're in hamilton but you're back in canada right now you didn't stick around for the closing ceremonies was that your choice or were the organizers there trying to hustle people out when their event was done to do anything possible to try and to prevent covid from spreading yeah i'm back in hamilton now um for like a couple couple days um but no I, if i could have chosen i definitely would have stayed and um stayed for closing and all that but no like the rule was we had to leave the very day after that we finished competing so yeah we were on the on the plane the very next day you had an absolutely fascinating path to the Olympics, honestly. And I don't know if everyone, but some people won't know your story. Uh, I mean, last year when the Olympics were postponed, you were talking about retiring from fencing and then all of a sudden something clicked and you seemed to regain the passion and got going again and started traveling all over the world for training. You haven't been in Canada for months leading up to this. Uh, when you've gone through all of that, was the Olympic experience satisfying or does it almost seem like it was just over so fast? It almost was a blur compared to what I went through to get there. Yeah. Like I think at, uh, at this point last year, you're right. I was very excited to quit fencing. I was, I, I had a coach that was um, a bit of a bully and it didn't help with making me <laughs> either successful at fencing or enjoy it at all. And those two tend to go hand in hand. So um, I started working with a new coach, uh, Alex Martin, who's like the husband of one of my teammates and just working with someone that had that passion and who cared about me as a person and wanted me to succeed because we both love fencing and we both like believe that I'm capable of being a great fencer. So that really um, made me excited and made me want to go go all in on fencing again and you know I'm only 26 so I'm definitely going to stick around and try to keep going for the next couple of years um but when I think of the Olympics like what I care about is fencing well and in that sense the Olympics is just one tournament um it's just one tournament and my result didn't, I don't think it, like, my individual result didn't, like, re reflect the level that I'm at. I ended up losing to the eventual gold medalist in a really, really tight match. Um, I think I fenced well, but I'm just excited to keep competing, and I, I wish there were more tournaments sooner. Like, the next tournament isn't going to be for quite a while, and I, I just feel so ready to keep going and keep fencing and um I know eventually my results will catch up to my actual level. So I'm excited for that. Does that drive you nuts though? When, when it turns out that the person you lost who goes on to win the gold medal, cause you could let your mind go, well, if I had won that, and I think it was 15, 13, like it was really close. Do you, you could start thinking if I had won that, I probably win a medal. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. Like I lost to, um, like a, a buddy of mine, Lee Kiefer. She's, I've been fencing against her for years and, she's a really cool person. And so I, like, if you have to lose to someone, like she's someone that it's, you know, I was happy for her that she won, but of course, like at the same time, I was like, you know, the past afterwards, I think I could have, um, 
had have had some really good battles and who knows what could have happened like one tiny thing different in that bout and maybe it could have been me you know so it it does I'm pretty salty still about like the actual result but I think my fencing is at a level that I can be proud of and I hope that my coach watching at home was able to watch and say okay like look there's all the stuff that we've been working on we're on the right path and I'm just ready to get back to work the, for those who don't recall, Eleanor in her last Olympics in Rio knocked off the number one fencer in the world. Uh, I, I'm guessing, Eleanor, that maybe last time you went into the Olympics and not everybody knew, some would have, but not everybody around the world knew who you were uh, or at least expected that kind of result. It would be pretty difficult once you've knocked off the very top fencer to sneak up on anybody. Now, everybody, when you show up to face them, is going to be ready with their best. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think... There's a lot more. Um, there's a lot more available to watch of me, like online. So it's easier to um, kind of like have a game plan going up against me now. And yeah, people take me seriously. Maybe before I could like get a couple easier points at the beginning because people wouldn't um, expect me to be <laughs> challenging. Um, so it would force people to have to like snap into it later. But at this point, uh, yeah, people come ready for a squirmy, uh, resilient battle because (laughs) that's my style. (laughs) You said, I think you used the word sulky a moment ago afterwards. When you go, when you lose that match, do you go back to your, your room in the athlete's village feeling just completely bummed out or is there something else that you're thinking? I was pretty angry. (laughs) I was I was mad. It could, it took me. A, I'm really glad that we had like a couple days before the team tournament because I was I was just really angry. Uh, like I was mad at myself because I had a pretty good lead and then like she made a comeback. And uh, honestly, another part of it that was really hard was so in fencing. If you get if you let your equipment get too sweaty. Um, if someone hits you where there's like where it shouldn't score a point, sometimes they can get a, a light that lights up that looks like they scored a point. So actually her last hit was to my shin, which is not target. But because I was so sweaty, um, she got the point. So technically, like I was really mad because the last point shouldn't have counted. But um, it's my fault because I let my equipment get that sweaty. There's no replay that you could have pointed to like in tennis or volleyball or something and said, check the review, yeah. check the replay. There's a replay, but when it comes to conducting, it's called like when you get that sweaty, because it's your own fault, there's nothing that they can do about it. So they still award the point anyways. So I was like mad at myself for letting that happen at the Olympics at the very last point when it was 13, 14 and I still had time to try to score a hit. But then her last point was like on my leg. So that was really hard. Five years ago in Rio, you got the opportunity at the Olympics to compete in front of a jammed auditorium where people were screaming and yelling and it was just like it was buzzing. This time, you know, there are a few people around, coaches and other athletes, but it's basically no fans. It's basically empty. What's honestly, what's better? Because I, I with one, it's exciting. And the other one, you can probably hear yourself think a little bit. Um. Yeah, it was a little bit weird because it was so quiet right and like I had my mask on 
and whenever you lift up your mask and you just hear completely nothing, it's hard to not like get into your own head. Um, but at the same time, I didn't have the pressure of performing in front of people or people booing or anything, which sometimes happens. So there were pros and cons. These were, as we all know, because of the delay and everything, these were the COVID games. Now, thankfully, touch wood, there have been almost no cases of COVID um, among the athletes, among coaches and all the rest. But how was the experience because of that, because of the concerns, how was the experience for you as an athlete, not, uh, not, not while fencing, but in all the other stuff? How was it different from Rio? Yeah, it was completely different. We had to get up every morning and do COVID tests before 7.30 a.m. So that like forced us to be on a pretty strict schedule. And then when it comes to like working out or going to the gym, in Rio, I could just do that whenever I wanted. But in Tokyo, we had to book a specific time at the gym. Um, we decided not to go to the main gym in the village because it increased exposure. Um, there was a, a gym in the Canada house that we could book and use, but that had to be very well organized. Um, basically, everything was as little interaction as possible. We didn't get to go into the city at all, um, didn't have any contact with any of the Japanese citizens. And all of this was really good because we didn't want to have a negative impact on the, the city or anything. So I'm glad that the restrictions were so tight. What about in the athlete's village? Was it the same and because we always hear stories about it being social and you sit and you talk with athletes from other countries or from Canada, was it like that? Or is it very business-like this time where you do your event and go back to your room, get some food and go back to your room? I think different countries had different rules, but for us, we were very strict. We, there was no um, lounges. Like usually at the Olympics, there's like a, a lounge in every building where you can like sit and relax and like watch sports and talk and meet people. There was none of that. Um, we just, stuff with ourselves and uh the only people we got to meet were the people in our rooms like there's six people in each room so we got to room with the trampoline people so i got to meet uh like rosie and mcclennan and stuff so that was cool um but yeah we didn't really meet anyone else so as you're in the athlete's village do you see people walking by do you see any like really famous people that everybody in the olympics has been watching or is that just not really because nobody's around yeah, you see people because you, like, walk into the dining hall. Um, but that's about it. Like, you see people at the at food. But when you're there, you have to wear gloves, you have to wear a mask, and there are, like, plexiglass separators at the dining hall. So it's hard to even talk to anyone because the plexiglass is, like, restricting the sound. Um, and so you just, you just see people kind of walking around, but everyone is wearing a mask and everything. So it's harder to even recognize anyone. Do, do people who win medals, do they wear them in the athlete's village or would that be really poor form to do that? <laughs> um, some people do. Uh, people do that at Pan Am games and stuff too. Um, I don't know. I wouldn't personally do that because I think I would be really awkward and I wouldn't like <laughs> the attention, but I don't know, like power to you if you, you, you want to do that. Now, because of everything that was going on, when, when we're watching for the swimming, for example, there are some people in the stands, but it's really, they're all athletes or, or officials, but it's really hard to tell because the camera's just zipping by. 
if these are other swimmers or if it's people from other sports. Because often in the Olympics, you can go and watch other activities when you're not. Did you get to do any of that? Or again, was it just a fencing and back to the village? No, we couldn't go see any other sports. I went to watch other fencing um, because like, my boyfriend is a men's foilist on the Canadian team. So I went to go watch him and the other men's foilist compete. Um, we had a women's saber fencer and a men's saber fencer and one men's epee. So every time a Canadian was fencing, we were all there cheering for each other. And that's it. Yeah, no other sports. I mean, it sounds like it was less of an experience than Rio. And, and I don't even know what I mean by that, but I mean, Rio always sounded like it was a giant party with the sports in the middle of it. This sounds like it was very businesslike. Yeah. Although I almost had a better experience this time because I had my whole team there. Like last time it was just individual for me. And this time I got to have like all my, my team with me. So that was way more fun. Even if we were just with ourselves, like watching other sports on TV, like wherever we are, we're an obnoxious, loud, annoying group of people who <laughs> love each other a lot. <laughs> so we, we had a great time anyways. Uh, I have to ask you about the uh, most notorious uh, part of the Athletes Village. We always hear stories of wild times in the Athletes Village. We hear, you know, reports beforehand about... Um, you know, birth control buckets being available and all the rest. No, not from personal experience. I'm not asking any about, is any of that stuff true or is that just completely blown out of proportion and that stuff never happens? Uh, I would say it's definitely true. Um, like it, it completely varies from person to person. Like some people go and it's all business. They're not there for like the experience. They're there to, to compete. But I know uh, definitely <laughs> the other side of it does exist where it's like, I'm done competing. I'm here for another couple of weeks. Uh, I've worked my myself, you know, really hard for the last four years. Time to let loose. So that definitely heard some stories in my day, but not this time. But what happens? So, but in the athletes' village, how do you balance that? Because you've got people who are trying to get sleep because they have to compete. Is there a place where that happens, or is there an accepted, you know, in around where the bedrooms are, no one makes any noise, or how does that work? Not, yeah, I mean, exactly. the, the the partying so, and stuff like that. Yeah, you like most people are pretty respectful. Like we all have to compete, so we know that like when other people are going to competing going to be competing you don't want to be making any noise so i don't know in rio a lot of people went out to clubs and stuff and bars but um couldn't couldn't do that this time we got to run but um you said and i'm i'm thrilled to hear it but you said that uh you are now not quitting which which is fantastic cuz again a year ago it sounded like this was something you were heading towards do you have another 3 years of the grind left in you do you think to go back and do it again yeah, for sure. Uh, I'm like probably, not probably, I'm definitely moving to Calgary um, so that I can keep fencing and I got like a job coaching out there um, and most of my teammates are out there too. So I'm going to be living there, going to be training, competing and I'm very excited to keep going and I did not see this coming a year ago. <laughs> No, uh, as I say, when we talked a year ago, you were, uh, I don't want to say despondent, but you, you sounded like the joy of it was gone. And so I'm surprised, but pleasantly surprised to hear you're so excited to keep going. 
Yeah, me too. I'm very excited. Thank you. That is Eleanor Harvey, just back from Tokyo, still still figuring out what's up and down in the time. And uh, do you know what time it is here right now? Or what time it is in Tokyo? Are you on Tokyo time still or Canada time? I, I'm all over the place. Every day is a new adventure. <laughs> that is Eleanor Harvey, just back. Uh, and you'll get to see her again, hopefully three years from now. That's uh, That's fantastic news. Eleanor, listen, welcome home. Thanks for doing this. Really appreciate the time. Yeah, it's always really fun talking to you. Thanks, Scott. I'm not a betting man. I don't wager on stuff because uh, I lose. <laughs> Quite simply, I don't have the money to wager, and I generally would lose if I did. But I think I would put a few bucks on a wager that many people listening right now are eager to get away somewhere, to go on a trip, to go on a vacation somewhere. Now, maybe not right this minute because it's summer and it's quite pleasant outside, but a few months from now, October, November, December, when the weather gets cool, gets cold, you know, we're going to be thinking about, "Mm, I'd like to go somewhere. And for many people, planning that, anticipating that, this is the time you start thinking about that. You start looking on the websites for resorts or cruises or whatever else. The problem is, what about this year? And here's why I asked that question. We like to believe that COVID is waning. We like to believe Canadians are getting double vaccinated. And all those things are seemingly true. I think Ontario had 132 cases of COVID today. I mean, small number. But we keep hearing these stories, these reports of a fourth wave that might be coming. And then Florida, which is inarguably, I would say, one of, if not the most popular travel destination. Disney World, Universal Studios, Knott's Berry Farm, that's Tampa, um, but all these places and, and the, the hub for so many cruises and everything else you might do in Florida. Um, it just set a record for hospitalizations. COVID is back with a bang there. What's going to happen? So how do you possibly know how to book something when you have no idea even though you are desperately ready to go and you've been saving your pennies for the day that we finally think that things are done, how do you possibly make plans? Shauna Curtin Weatherall is with the Expedia Cruise is the owner of Expedia Cruises in Waterdown. She joins us now. Shauna, how are you today? Hi. This um, I don't want to be Debbie Downer here, but this does not sound all that encouraging for those who are trying to make plans and figure out what the heck they're doing this winter. Well, what I can say is um, confidence in the consumer right now is returning um, because of the vaccination rates that that Canada has, and they're feeling a little bit safer. Um, As far as destinations go, uh, we're offering clients COVID insurance that's reasonably priced. We have cancel for any reason, and we're recommending to everybody that the cancel for any reason is really their best option. Because COVID is a known event, and because there still is a travel advisory to not travel for non-essential travel, cancel for any reason gives you an 80% back and you can literally cancel for any reason. So it, it, it gives you a little bit of, it's not as risky as before when people were just booking and saying, I'm going no matter what. Now they have to actually think of what's out there. Is that, I mean, is that relatively new? Because there's always been travel insurance if you suddenly got sick a week before or if your parent died or something, but is tr- cancel for any reason a new, a COVID-based new thing? Um, no, the COVID insurance is new, and that only protects you in destination for uh, COVID. But the cancel for any reason is with the Manulife Global Travel Insurance Policy. So it's just through your travel agencies, and um, we offer the cancel for any reason. And it's come in great because it's not just, they don't really, 
you don't have to give a reason. It doesn't have to be a medical reason. It doesn't have to be a broken leg. It doesn't have to be somebody is ill in your family. It can literally be, um, I, I just don't feel comfortable going. And that's not a reason to cancel. Your cancellation insurance would not cover that. But if you don't feel comfortable traveling and you've got your trip booked, you're not going to get 100% back, but you will get up to 80% back of what you've paid. So it's not a full loss. And that's what we're telling people as far as COVID when they're saying, well, what if I get it before I go? Mm. Well, you booked knowing that COVID is a, uh, is an event right now and there is a travel advisory. So your best bet is we're not telling people not to book, but make sure you're protected. It's still, though, I would think is a little bit confusing because we're now people may have their vaccines and may feel reasonably protected. But if we're talking about variants, we don't really know about, you know, whether the vaccines will protect for that. And so you're you're looking at these vacation spots and saying, okay, where's the safest, best place that I can plan on going? And it's really confusing because we're seeing these record numbers of hospitalizations, for example, in Florida. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, cruises are restarting. Disney World is removing most of its COVID protocols. You can go back to almost normally. So it's it's really hard to figure out what is what is true and what's going on. Right. So with, with cruises and all-inclusive resorts right now, capacity is reduced. Uh, we just had a consultant come back from a celebrity cruise in Greece and the capacity was reduced. So it was great for the 3,000 person ship that has, you know, 800 people on it. She was really fortunate. It was a great experience. Um, I I think for Canadians, what we're also advising clients is stick to our protocols, because even though you go somewhere else and the protocols are relaxed, we have to be smart about our travel. So keep your mask on, keep your distance. Don't think just because you're somewhere else and on holidays, we can relax because the COVID is still out there. Um, the best thing I would say for, for anybody that's booking a trip is definitely reach out to travel agents because we're going to read the fine print and we're staying on the updates that most people don't. So it's not as easy as just going online and pressing book. And that's where a lot of people during the pandemic found themselves in trouble because they thought, well, I, I, you know, of course I can't go because the government is telling me I can't travel. Do I, don't I get a refund? And a lot of people didn't and lost money. So we're making sure that everybody is is informed. We're reading the fine print and we're giving them as up-to-date information as we possibly can. And I assume there are some people too who are still having memories of, you know, uh, the cruise ship, the one, was it off the California coast back when COVID started that bobbed around for like six weeks because nobody would take it back because they had an outbreak or yeah. or even even the fact that, you know, if if a fourth wave was to come, who knows if the Canadian government suddenly says again, you have to do your two week quarantine, even if you've had your vaccines and you don't want to be stuck somewhere. So, I mean, there, there's still, uh, I would think, things that are in the back of people's minds as they're planning. Yes. And that's and exactly for what you're saying is why I say circle right back to that cancel for any reason, because you don't feel comfortable. You don't want to go. And yes, you're losing a little bit of money, but you're not losing at all. And you have to protect yourself because we just don't know what's down the road. Now, having said that, I can say that the cruise lines have been more than fair with people. There's some that don't want a a future cruise credit, but they're giving them two and three years to use those future cruise credits. All-inclusive resorts now have implemented um, their own policies within their packages. So when you are in destination, you're covered for um, COVID. You're also covered for if you want to change your date. So, you know, Scott, you and your family would have something, let's say, booked for November, and all of a sudden you're like, this is not a good time to travel. Let's move this. Where normally you would pay a penalty, a lot of the all-inclusive resorts now are giving you, within your package, the option to change that date without any penalty. So people are, they're, they're trying to be flexible, as flexible as they can. Does that speak to the desperation, quite honestly, of the travel industry after what's happened? 
Well, I think, yeah, the travel industry was certainly decimated, and it still is. Every day we get hit with something new. So to ensure that a customer is confident when they're going somewhere and that they feel safe and that they know that they're being taken care of, not just by their travel agent, but by the destination that they're going to, absolutely has to come into play. It's, It's not the same as it was in 2019, March 15th. After that, everything changed. Well, yeah, and, and I, I have to assume that uh, the all the tourism and travel and I- the industry has to get back up and running. I mean, it, it, as you say, decimated. I mean, some of these, the, the, the ships, the billion-dollar ships that are floating around just doing nothing right now are these huge resorts that have, you know, that have taken out huge loans to pay for buildings and everything else. They've got to get people back in there. They do, and so people are expecting prices to be really low, and I can tell you that based on medical staff being put into resorts and on ships and quarantine areas and testing kits and PCR tests, particularly so Canadians can come home because we need a PCR test prior to coming home and we have to have the ArriveCan app. So everything that's been put in place to ensure that travel is safe and people feel comfortable, of course, costs extra money. So it's not so much recovery that they're just trying to make up more and they're charging more. It's they've put protections in place for people that make you comfortable and that comes with a cost. I think you're right, though. I think a lot of people figure that when they're desperate, they'll drop their prices to get you to come. And and are you hearing that a lot by people saying, where are these, where are the sell-offs? Where are the great prices? Yeah, absolutely. And even last-minute deals, there isn't last-minute deals. And again, that's due to capacity. So if you're waiting for the last minute to book something, think there'll be a deal, it'll be booked up. And you have to remember that the United States started traveling before Canada did. And so they're booking on those ships and they're booking into those all-inclusive resorts as well which means when you go to book something last minute, the availability is not there. I, I got to tell you, Shauna, I am through this whole thing and I'm, I'm happy that I'm wrong, but I'm, I'm shocked that we haven't seen one or two cruise lines find themselves in a real financial problem or worse or shut down because again, I mean, the amount that these cruise lines have spent in recent years on these enormous billion dollar ships that they're mm-hmm. paying for right now, they're paying to, you know, the, their bills to, to, for the building of these things. I, I'm amazed nobody has gone under. Well, I think that just shows the multi-billion dollar industry that, you know, the cruise industry is, how important it is to people. And I can tell you that People that are cruisers are cruisers, and we have people that have had cruises canceled and rebooked three and four times. We had people that have been stuck in hurricanes, and we had people that were on the Diamond Princess, and they're all booking again because cruisers know, and you know this, how great onboard cleaning is, and now they have just changed it and made it that much better. You know, the buffets, someone will serve you. They have um, room cleaning, luggage cleaning, so when your luggage comes on, it's... um, it's sprayed and everything has been just upped to ensure the safety because of course the cruise lines don't want to be caught, you know, with any, with a pandemic on board. So there's that, Mm. that room for, for what they have to do. And they're governed under the CDC, which is watching them very carefully. That said, I've heard from a number of people who, who have cruised in the past. And one of the comments that has been said is like, I really want to go, like I'm dying to get out there and get back on a ship somewhere because I love it. But I don't know if I want to have to wear a mask everywhere I go or have to socially distance or, or, you know, follow some sort of new protocols that are unfamiliar because it wouldn't feel the same. Is, is comfort and familiarity a big deal for people? I think it is, but I think we have to keep in mind that, that everything has changed. Now you go into the grocery store and wear a mask. If you're at the hockey rink, you're going to wear a mask. 
if you're anywhere right now, wear masks and we're watching and following protocols and using hand sanitizer. So travel is, is the same as the world we're living in right now. So it has changed. And I think everyone has to go into travel realizing that they have to be a little more flexible. They have to know things are going to change. And if you aren't willing to accept those changes, I would suggest not traveling because when you travel, you still have to follow those protocols and you have to ensure that you're safe and the people around you are safe. So, you know, is it great to wear a mask everywhere? No. When I have clients in my office, we're sitting with a mask on. I can't even offer them a coffee. But that's just the world we're in right now. And to me, it's more important to travel and wear a mask than not travel at all. They'll come home with the with the tan line looking like the opposite of Fred Flintstone with the whole mask, you know, tan line on their face. Well, while you're drinking, <laughs> eating, or sunbathing, um, you can take the mask off. And, when and, on, asking, and on a cruise, Shauna, that's pretty much 24 hours a day, eating or drinking. <laughs> you got it. You got it. So not very often will you have it on, but they've got, you know, the bed loungers separated as far as social distancing. And in restaurants, it's social distancing. Again, like I said, the capacity is reduced. So it's actually a great cruising experience because you don't have a full ship. How many people are walking in though now, and they may have concerns about all the stuff that we're talking about, but they just, uh, you know, to heck with it. I'm so desperate to go. I don't care. I'll take my chances. I'll do whatever. Just get me somewhere this winter warm. There's, there's more than you think. So particularly for all-inclusive resorts, we're booking more all-inclusive resorts right now for the fall of 2021. For 22 and 23, we're booking cruises, and that's when people feel comfortable And again, the travel advisory is still in effect in Canada, and there's differences with the cruise lines. People do not want to go into the States, but we do have more all-inclusive resorts for the fall that people feel comfortable going to those Caribbean islands. That's a, you know, that's a bit of a... um a mystery too, because we don't know as much about what's happening for real on there. I mean, your job as a travel agent now has probably become half, well, three quarters booking and knowing what you're selling and a quarter communicable disease expert to know what's going on in these places. (laughs) You know what? It's it's with tornadoes and Zika virus and everything else that, that we've dealt with. This is by far the worst because it's what we say to clients is this is what we know today. And it may change and we're going to keep up on it and, and keep as informed as we can, but it changes daily. It's so fluid still on what is happening. So with the Caribbean islands, again, we say to people, when you go down there, don't let your guard down. And that's, I think that's the biggest advice I can give people is when you go somewhere, just don't let your guard down thinking, well, I'm on holidays. Everything is good. You don't want to come back and be sick or come back and infect somebody else because you, you decided you're on holidays and, you know, you can take your mask off and, I don't know, have a lot of, lot more fun than you should. <laughs> but e- even with the cancel for any reason, um, and, and I mean, obviously that's a good thing. And I, I would, you know, if I was going away somewhere, I would be certainly looking at that right now. The, the not being able to go somewhere as was the case last year is really frustrating as people want to get away. But I would say 10 times more frustrating is booking something, being really excited about going and then having to pull the plug. That, that's, that's just painful stuff when, when you've been looking forward to something for a year, a year and a half, and now you have to make changes. Yeah, I think we have uh, some people that are a little bit afraid to, to do that confirmation of just get me booked because they're afraid they'll have to move it again. And others are just, I know I might have to move this, but let's just do it. So I think for the, the future cruise credits and the future travel credits for resort destinations, how people are looking at it is I'm going to travel anyway. Now this is just my credit to use. It's already paid. And when I go, it's paid. And it's just whatever attitude you take, I think. And, and thinking positive, 
that it's, you know, there's light at the end of the tunnel. Thinking positive, you're going to travel, you've already got that paid for, and now we just have to wait till we can do it. And always, I, I don't know, I try to always see the, the positive side of it because, <laughs> you know, the negative side is really negative. <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, and, and, and I mean, we've seen stories, as we say, the the Diamond Princess or whatever these other ones. I mean, there there are some negative ones. Now, we only have a minute or so left here, but I know tourism experts in this country who might be listening right now are screaming at the radio saying, look, stay home and explore Canada. That's that's what we should be doing. You don't have to cross the border. And, and, and here's the tricky part of that. That's a great, that's a fantastic idea in the summertime. I'm not sure how many people want to do the Anne of Green Gables experience in mid-February. Right. And you know what, having we have just come back, my husband and I from Rocky Mountaineer. So we did that from Vancouver to Banff. And that was just a week and a half ago that we came back. So traveling in Canada is a great option. There's but people do want to get to Sunshine and Beach. But if you do want to go and you just can't go anywhere, definitely we've got some great places in Canada to go. You've got your insurance coverage, you buy out of province insurance. And you're home. And it's and I have to tell you, it was nice to tip in Canadian dollars. It was nice not to do an exchange rate on anything. It was nice to be home. Shauna Curtin Weatherall uh, with Expedia Cruises and Waterdown. Listen, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you very much, Shivazal. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. What I'm talking about, a, well, this is a really cool bit of technology. I mean, unquestionably, it's a really neat, really clever, creative bit of technology. It's called ShotSpotter, and it's a technology used by police in some big American cities. Essentially, what it does is it has sensors and microphones at different parts of the city, and it monitors loud bangs and loud sounds, and then using algorithms can triangulate those sounds and pinpoint pretty accurately, it says, where it came from. Very space age and what time it came from and everything. And you could, you know, in a big, big American city where there is a high crime situation or let's say extensive gang activity, gang violence, you could see how this could become a useful tool. You can't have police on every single intersection. You can't be there to gather evidence and and have witnesses for every shooting, especially in places like Chicago, which is one of the cities that has this in New York or others, Detroit. But here you've got a piece of technology that theoretically could at least put where the shot came from at what time. And you could begin with the evidence, begin with the details to be trying to solve this if you are the police. Now, here is the tricky part on this. Here's where the issues come in. Here's what we're talking about as much as that is cool technology. There seem to have been some cases where police believe it hasn't been exactly correct, where police have asked that the evidence be moved a little bit, that the decision or the the construction of where the shooting came from, that it be altered a little bit a little bit altered a little bit to fit better with what the police know and believe based on their investigation would be correct. So this becomes a very difficult situation. Now we've got technology, we've got humans. They don't always add up together. Mm, What do you do with that one? And how reliable then when we get into technology for these kind of things, how reliable is it? I want to bring in Carmi Levy, who is a tech analyst, great at his job. Carmi, thanks for doing this today. I really appreciate it. Great to be here, Scott. Glad to be on with you today. This sounds 
like a miracle device. When I read this, it was it's it's it, like it sounds perfect. This sounds like a miracle thing for a, a city that has crime problems. Uh, that you just have to be able to turn this thing on, I guess, with the software, and boom, you have your your answers for a lot of the problems. It definitely looks great on a PR, you know, on a press release or something. You know, who wouldn't want to have microphones embedded in various parts of the city? And then they're always listening. They're connected to uh, a computing system. There are very sophisticated sensors that analyze sound in real time. And as soon as they detect something, they're able to zero in exactly on where it occurred. They send that alert to police departments and they know that shots have been fired exactly here and they can respond accordingly at it sounds like the stuff of dreams. Law enforcement officers have waited for forever for this kind of capability. Uh, they don't have to wait for people to call them. They can respond right now and you know potentially save lives. But it's sort of one of those things you sort of have to be careful what you wish for because there's a whole dark side to deploying this technology that illustrates it isn't always as it seems that in many cases it can cause problems that you had not foreseen and uh, at the same time maybe not necessarily resolve the problem that you were hoping to resolve in the first place. So, you know, it's it's been around for about 20, 25 years in various forms, but, you know, the data is conflicting as to whether it helps or whether it hinders. Well, one example, and I'm reading this story that, that in Chicago, I guess, what, there have been a couple of cases or more than a couple, I guess, where police have said the, this, this technology told them the shot came from spot X, but you get there and it's very abundantly clear that the shot came from maybe a block away or something. And I suppose there's evidence that's there. What do you do when you've now got this very advanced, very cool technology competing with human police work, human instincts, human discovery, what do you do when they don't add up together? Well, I think we sort of have to recognize where ShotSpotter fits into the overall toolkit of law enforcement. And, you know, the, it, it's easy for us to say, hey, it's a magic bullet, it's a panacea, it will solve every problem if you have a high crime neighborhood. Just install ShotSpotter and it'll tell you everything you need to know. When the reality is it isn't perfect. It doesn't always zero in on the exact location of uh, a particular uh, uh, event, uh, or sometimes it it thinks it hears gunfire, but in fact it could be firecrackers or a car backfiring or something else. It's not a hundred percent. The problem here is when law enforcement relies on it completely, and 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 in in some cases, particularly in an instance in Chicago, there's evidence that uh, after a particular report was shared by the Shot Spotter network. Uh, the an analyst went in and actually changed the data. So, you know, it, it wasn't a firecracker. It was gunfire. And it didn't happen here. We moved it over there. And then that evidence was then used in court uh, to prosecute mm. someone wrongly. And so, you know, it, it opens up a, you know, a Pandora's box of issues because if, if, if it's collecting data, because that's what technology does, and then that data is allowed to be doctored, allowed to be played with after the fact, you sort of have to ask yourself the question, is it protecting people in the community or is it being used against them, Big Brother style? Great. And by the way, if this company is not using the magic bullet as one of their marketing tools, they really uh, they really <laughs> should be. Um, the thing is, too, it's not just this, because in many, many, many cities, uh, in fact, I would say nowadays, almost every city, there are other technologies available that help police solve the crimes. We have closed circuit cameras, uh, every security cameras everywhere now, not even just government ones. We have private cameras that every time a crime happens, the police will go and say, do you have security cameras and can we have the tape? Uh, technology has become uh, 
everywhere when it comes to solving crimes and police work. It has. And, you know, I don't want to sound like I, I, I don't want law enforcement to have the best possible tools. Let's face it, technology can be uh, a, a force multiplier. It can help law enforcement do a better job of protecting the community with, the, 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 with you know, within constrained or limited resources. Uh, how often does a crime happen on the street and police reach out to uh, people in the neighborhood? If you have footage, please share it with us. And it can solve a crime that would otherwise go unsolved. I don't think anybody would argue against that. The problem here is when they overstep. So, for example, Amazon, um, you know, owns the company Ring that makes all those doorbells. And, you know, my house has one and many of my friends have them. And uh, without the knowledge of people who bought them, they had actually signed deals with police departments uh, and, and, and with Am- across Canada and the U.S. to share that footage, uh, you know, without the direct knowledge of people who had bought these devices. So in theory, I was part uh, of a very large surveillance network unbeknownst to me. And so that that's a bit of an overreach. And of course, there was a huge controversy when that when that that news broke, uh, when police departments were allowing just anyone to go into a facial recognition database uh, and, uh, you know, that uses artificial intelligence called Clearview AI, um, and then just use it to, you know, look at look out for people without actually having a warrant or having just cause. Uh, that also overstepped and raised a lot of concerns about just how far toward Big Brother are we going. And so mm-hmm. we have to find this better balance point where these technologies are being deployed, but they have to be used responsibly. And the rights, the privacy rights of all citizens uh, have to be recognized. Otherwise, we're basically going to be living in a police state and, and there will be no controls over how these technologies can be abused if we allow them to be. Uh, on a total non sequitur, but I want to ask you this question. You talk about the doorbell cameras and everything else. How come we can get a crystal clear 4K image of the surface of Mars beamed back to us, and yet every closed circuit security camera looks like it's in eight total pixels? <laughs> yeah, I've asked myself that question I don't know how many times. And I think part of it has to do with uh, with bandwidth. Is if it's expensive to store and share that information. Uh, so, for example, if I have a camera on the front of my home and I have a storage plan, um, 4K takes up a lot more space and uses a lot more uh, bandwidth on the network than just an old, you know, sub HD 720p um, feed. <laughs> and so I think a lot of these, these systems are older. They're based on older technology. And that's just the way it is. If we're if we want higher quality we're going to have to pay for it. And not just in the actual camera itself, but all the supporting uh, infrastructure, the network that feeds it. And unfortunately for us, we aren't really willing to pay for that. So we're still going to be stuck with fuzzy black and white for the foreseeable future. All right. Let's go back to what you were talking about before, before I got onto my complete non sequitur there. Um, It does, all this does raise questions though, when you have technology and cameras and sound microphones and things elsewhere. And how much are we willing to give up our freedoms for the opportunity, the ability to solve crimes? I, I, I don't know the answer. What What do you think is the answer there? Are people, if we said, look, we can, we believe that we could solve 90% of serious crimes in our community if we put a video camera on every single street corner. 
I think we're willing to make reasonable accommodation, and the key word here is reasonable. Um, in other words, uh, you know, I'm I'm willing to you know have certain things installed uh, as long as the rules are explained, as long as the process is transparent, as long as law enforcement is communicating um, what they're using it for, where that data goes, how it's used in prosecutions and cases and things like that. I think things go off the rails, and I get nervous when it isn't transparent, when they're not sharing, when they simply go ahead and, and install things or use the data without telling us what they're using it for. Um, it's, it's when things are under the cover of night that you know, we, you know our antenna should go up and we should start questioning uh, whether, in fact, this is the way that we should be going about it. And, and I think that's it, it's up to us, too. When we buy a, a doorbell camera, we're part of that process because the terms of use statements that, of course, nobody ever reads when they install the app specify very clearly that Amazon and Ring reserve the right to work with third parties and share data with them. Well, that's part of it. And so they'll come back and say, you agreed to it. Sure, we did, but we never bothered reading it. So we have a responsibility as consumers to open our eyes and be part of that conversation. But also law enforcement, civic government, all levels of government really also have an accountability to make sure that we are informed. And I think everyone meets in the middle. And as long as we're talking about it, I think that's fair. Because if we work together and we're all front about it, we can have a safer society, but we also have to recognize that there are dark sides to this. Like, is ShotSpotter being deployed only in certain neighborhoods that are racialized, or is it being deployed across the city? If it isn't, and if it's putting certain groups of our population at disadvantage, we, as part of that process, have to ask those questions and challenge it. And up until now, that really hasn't been the case. Well, and look, in parts of China, for example, which is the extreme of this, uh, they literally really do have cameras everywhere and they operate on a social credit system. And I'm sure that people there, even though there probably isn't a whole lot of crime, I'm sure many people there would now that they had it say, I'll happily trade back some unsolved crimes for more freedoms that I don't have right now. The Chinese experience with that, you know, probably the world's most sophisticated mass surveillance network we have ever seen, uh, illustrates just what happens when we lose control of the process. And I mean, obviously, China, there isn't going to be due process. There isn't going to be public debate. Uh, you know, the, the Communist Party is simply going to install whatever it wants and you don't question it. Uh, but, you know, we can very easily trend in that direction if we're not careful as well, uh, because, the, you know, some a technology can be installed with the best of intentions. But then under the cover of night, it can be used for something else that we were never part of and we were never informed of. And so I think we have to look to China as an example of where we don't want to go. And we have to challenge those who, who do want to use this technology to say and ask them, what are you going to do to prevent that from happening here? Well, no one's saying that this is like communist China, but the abuse of technology can very easily happen here if we are not completely aware, if we are not vigilant. Uh, to ensure that that doesn't happen here. Oh, sure. Whether it's a government or whether it's a private company that's doing this, you have to have a exceedingly high level of trust in them to believe that they're going to do the right thing with this kind of equipment. That's right. And, and, and I'm not saying that, that the government has malevolent intent or that the cops want to, you know, in many cases, this is, this is unintentional. So, for example, when the technology is first installed, if it's installed only in a high crime area, that deliberately puts uh, people of color at, at, at risk, uh, then I think it's up to us to ask the question, well, what about the rest of the city? Why is this not being deployed in a more fair manner? So, you know, I think as long as we're part of that 
process that when this technology is announced, that we ask those questions, that we ensure that it's being done so in a way that uh, you know puts at advantage everyone in society and doesn't leave anyone behind. I think that's you know where we have to be part of it. Don't just assume that because you're not tech savvy or whatever that you know you don't have to be part of that conversation. We all have to be because ultimately we're all going to be subject to it. You and I will be walking down the street someday, and if we say nothing today, eventually that technology is going to be influencing how we lead our lives. I don't think anyone wants to go there. We need to be part of that conversation now. And you bring up another really complicated point about where these things are. In many of these cities, they are not right across town. They are in areas of high crime. That's why they were put there, which happened to be, in some of these cases, racialized areas. And then the, you know, the question becomes, okay, we don't have an endless budget, so we have to pick and choose. We either do this area or we don't do any. And like these are all exceedingly complicated things, especially if you're someone who is overseeing a budget and say, we, we have to pick and choose or not do it at all. Exactly. There's only so much to go around and resources are always going to be limited. You never have a limited budget. Um, but I think as members of the society that is subject to this kind of surveillance, we have the right to ask, OK, so you're going to install it in a high crime area because that's where the priority lies. But what are you doing to ensure that the people who live there aren't now subject to cops blazing in with, you know, guns at the ready because shot spotter has primed them to to be ready to come in? Are you putting people are you removing one risk? for these, these populations, for these neighborhoods, and only introducing others? Uh, and what are you doing to balance that off? Uh, because in many cases, the data suggests that it doesn't actually reduce crime, but basically what it does is it ensures that those neighborhoods that are covered by this technology are more subject to uh, you know, significant police intervention when an alert goes out. Uh, and so does that make people safer, or does that put them at greater risk? We have to have that conversation. And the answer isn't absolute. It may be different for one neighborhood relative to another, but we have to at least ask those questions and be willing to engage in public debate. Because up until now, there has been no discussion. The technology just goes in and then we kind of learn about it on the fly, which is just not the way to go. And I think part of that, and tell me if you disagree, uh, but I think part of that is that many people, many of us, I'll include myself at times, we seem to put almost more trust in technology than in people because the technology is not going to make a mistake. Technology is run by computers. It's objective. It just, and so therefore it must be right and much better than people at doing things. Yeah, that's a very dangerous assumption to make. And, and I've always said technology is only as good as the humans who make it. Uh, and there's no such thing as perfect technology. It, it's always going to be fallible. And even more so when you put it in the hands of humans then who make the decision on how to deploy it and how to use it. So, for example, you know, you can install ShotSpotter in a neighborhood, but then if you have lousy processes that determine how that alerting happens and how police are then deployed when an alert occurs, uh, you know, you're going to make a bad situation worse. You're not going to solve the original problem. You're just going to introduce new ones. Uh, and so anytime anyone sort of looks at technology as a magic bullet or a panacea, that's when I start to worry. I'm like, no, no, no. You know, think of it as a, we have a toolkit. This is one of the, the additions to our toolkit. We have to deploy it and use it responsibly. And if we don't have those conversations, then we shouldn't be deploying it at all. It's technology shouldn't lead. We should lead with process and dialogue and under, common understanding that respects the rights of the different communities that it's going to touch. And then we should, you know, deploy it into the community. Because if we can't get to that point, we shouldn't be using these tools at all because it's kind of like a rocket. Uh, once you light it, it can either you, you, you'll have a really good day because it'll get you into orbit or you're going to have a really bad day. And if you aren't prepared for that, 
then you shouldn't be launching that rocket at all. Well, yeah, and it, it seems like anyway with these things, we're, we're just got a second here, but it, it seems as though they could be tremendous tools, but one mess up, one flub up and suddenly, or one change or one thing that's called into question and suddenly all the credibility is gone. Like, you know, when, when this thing happens and we're reading stories that, you know, some data analyst or someone changed some numbers or place in there, you know, now literally every single court case, I'm guessing, that this is going to be used in, it's going to be called into question. That's right. That's because no one had the conversation up front. What protections are we going to are we going to put in place to ensure that when the when this this system generates data, when ShotSpotter tell, tells us that something has happened, that that data is then held, uh, you know, in 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 a secure manner, so that if it's ever used in a court case, it can't be played with, it can't be messed around with. You know, police departments have been maintaining evidentiary chains since the beginning of policing. Uh, and so why this is any different with data, I don't understand. Uh, but certainly that is an issue that we have to deal with. And we have to ensure that all evidence, digital or not, is sacrosanct. And that's sort of one of the aspects that we have to make sure is covered off before we even decide to plug any of this stuff in. If we don't, uh, then we have no right to be plugging it in in the first place. Carmi Levy, tech analyst, uh, always a great job. Really appreciate you taking time today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks so much, Scott. Appreciate being here. It is, uh, it's a, look, as I say, I go back to my point. It's a fascinating, really clever, really creative, really brilliant idea. And it, it sounds like, and everything I've read about it, and I've read a bunch of things about it now, it sounds like it works exceptionally well. And yet it, now, you know, um, a few tinkerings with it that people weren't told about. And now all the credibility is up in the air, I guess. I, I don't know how courts are going to see this, but I, I, it's, it's the, it's the endless debate and the endless push and pull of technology. As Carmi just said is it's fantastic as long as we're controlling it. And many of us, and, and again, I throw myself into this because I do this at times and I, I'm not happy about it. And I, I, I slap myself when I catch myself doing it, but we, we just believe that technology must be better than human thinking or human reasoning. Technology is technology is technology. It's, it's, you know, we, we couldn't have gone to the moon without rudimentary computers, but even those, you know, we needed those computers the, the people still had to operate them, but that technology was pretty spectacular and on and on and on. It's a fascinating story, though. Uh, you can go read about it. It's, as I say, it's called Shot Spotter. It's a really interesting story that's going on with this. Um, but, you know, video cameras, we have video cameras around here. Are we, are we always, is everybody always doing the right thing with video cameras? You decide. Today, the Canadian Medical Association and the Canadian Nurses Association have jointly called for the mandatory vaccination of healthcare workers, of all healthcare workers. And this is certainly, you know, earlier in the show, we were talking about the back to school uh, plan in Ontario. And, you know, people are questioning, should teachers be required to be vaccinated before they go back in the class? Should students have to be vaccinated? Should everybody have to be vaccinated. Now you start getting into potentially some tricky spots with some of those questions, but what about healthcare workers? Those, those who are theoretically anywhere, if not practically on the front lines who are dealing with this, should they be required to have a vaccination in order to do their job? 
Well, as I say, the Canadian Medical Association and the Canadian Nurses Association seem to say, yes, Dr. Catherine Smart is the incoming president of the Canadian Medical Association. She joins us. Dr. Smart, thank you for this today. Appreciate your time. Thank you for having me, Scott. So I, as I'm hearing this, I, I, one thing that comes to mind, and I know I've read some things about this, but is this a, a significant issue? Are many healthcare workers deciding not to get the vaccine? No, you know, I think the vast majority of healthcare workers are choosing to be vaccinated, just like we're seeing in the Canadian population. You know, by far the majority of people are choosing vaccination. But the problem that we have is it needs to be better than just most. With the Delta variant coming and what we're seeing there, we really need to get the numbers higher than they are. And we believe that patients have the right to feel safe where they receive health care. And the way to guarantee that is ensuring everyone who provides care is vaccinated. Do we have any, is there any way to know what the percentage of healthcare workers with the vaccine is? We don't have that data because it hasn't been collected at this point in time. We do have, you know, smaller data sets from various jurisdictions that show a range of vaccination rates. But I think what we know is the right number is is high. It's going to need to be 95 to 100% to really show safety for patients. And that's what we want to see happen. One question that somebody asked me about this, and I thought it was a terrific question. Um, presumably, people who are working in the healthcare industry are intelligent people. I would like to believe so. <laughs> in fact, I, I expect that's the case. But they would also know, I believe, more about vaccines, more about drugs, more about this stuff than the average person. So what are you hearing? The people who aren't, the people who have decided in your industry who aren't getting the vaccine, why are, what are they saying is the reason why they're not doing it? Well, I think we have to remember that healthcare workers cross a broad spectrum of the population. You know, we're talking about people like myself who are physicians who have a lot of privilege, down to people that are working as personal support to aides, we're often underpaid, working multiple jobs, and, th- and those situations are quite different for people. There are structural barriers for some people in healthcare. For example, if I'm a personal aide and I want to get vaccinated, but I don't have a paid sick day in case I get a side effect or perhaps I'm working multiple jobs that don't give me time to go get vaccinated, those things may all play into my decision-making. So I think we need to address the structural issues that may be at play. We also need to recognize that there may be healthcare providers that have questions about vaccine safety, and they need the opportunity to explore those uh, with other healthcare providers that they trust. I read today that uh, the numbers in Ontario, I think it was 139 cases today across Ontario of COVID cases. Why the push now? I mean, the numbers seem to be very, very, very low now. Um, Why the push for healthcare workers to be mandated vaccinated now? I think what we are seeing in Canada is the rise of the Delta variant, which is a game changer in terms of the direction COVID is going I think we're all very grateful that we have had some reprieve from COVID here over the summer, and that's largely to do with increasing vaccination rates across the country and some of the natural decrease you see in viral activity in the summer period. But with Delta taking over as the prominent variant and just looking around the rest of the world and what's happening, it's quite clear that unless our vaccination rates are higher, we are going to see large outbreaks of that variant. And that is going to push the healthcare system back into a fourth wave. And, and that is not what we want to see happen. So now that there's no longer any barriers in terms of accessibility of vaccine, we feel the time is now to ensure that everyone is vaccinated. 
if variants are the concern, and clearly they are right now, will the vaccines prevent the transmission of them? Because we're, we're hearing about people who are getting COVID or the, the, the Delta, even though they have been vaccinated, will this solve the problem? So there's no question that when you're vaccinated, your risk of transmitting disease is much lower. It's not zero, but it's much lower. Also, your chance of being hospitalized or having a severe health outcome is radically lower than in people who are unvaccinated. So the best protection right now is having the, as many people vaccinated as possible. Um, and the higher that number is, the less opportunity there is for these variants to get into the population and spread. If we're talking about um, mandatory vaccines for healthcare workers, would this be, in your mind, would this be an ongoing thing that as we develop, I, I expect a vaccine that could deal with the Delta variant or, you know, like the influenza where every year you get a flu shot because there's a different strain. Would you see this as being a mandatory thing for ongoing shots? You know, I think that's really going to depend on what happens with the pandemic. Um, you know, possibly yes possibly no, depending on what happens moving forward. But I think what we know right now is, you know, this is a, obviously a global crisis. It's quite clear the only way out of it is through vaccination. And if we see a fourth wave, we're going to be back into lockdowns. We're going to see school closures. We're going to have the impact on the healthcare system. And I don't think that's what anybody wants. And the way to not have that happen is by vaccines. And in the healthcare space, the way to keep our patients safe is that everyone who works in those spaces is vaccinated. And, and let's be honest, I think there's an awful lot of people listening, probably the vast majority who would agree with you and say, yes, I would like the people who are working in my, who are handling healthcare or working with me in a hospital or that kind of setting. I think a lot of people would very much approve of that idea. A tricky part of this though, I pulled up the um, government of Canada website about immunization of workers, what the rules are for the Canada Immunization Guide. And it says, as I'm reading it, tetanus, hep B, influenza, measles, polio, rubella, they are all simply listed for healthcare workers as recommended, not mandatory. And I mean, should we be, if we're going to talk about a COVID vaccine being mandatory, should we be requiring that healthcare workers have all these vaccines that most of us have from our youth? I think, you know, the reason we're talking about this with COVID-19 is because we are in a pandemic that's an extraordinary situation. And that's why we're really pushing for what some people may seem is a more extreme approach. Um, you know, certainly, as you mentioned, there are other infectious diseases where people have, you know, it's recommended. And depending where you work, some of those things actually are mandatory. For example, you have to provide proof that you don't have tuberculosis. You have to provide proof of your measles vaccine. What we're lo really looking for here with COVID is a national approach consistency because this is a national problem. Yeah. I, and as I say, I, I think most people would probably agree with that. I just, I almost wonder now if, if we're going to do it, uh, if that was going to be the rule, then make it across the board that you've, if you're going to work in that sector, you have to, now some people will disagree, but that you have to have all those things. Um, it, it's a, you know, it, it would be an interesting one to say that, and I know what you're saying, COVID is certainly front burner right now, but an interesting one to say COVID you have to be vaccinated for, but not these other things. We just like you to be vaccinated for these other things. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's lots of things to talk about. That's for sure. And, you know, my own perspective is there's, Nothing safer we offer in healthcare than vaccination. So I, I would hope that most healthcare providers feel that way. Vaccination has 
changed the whole trajectory of health across the world, and we're seeing that happen again with COVID-19. Dr. Smart, we, we do live in a country, in a democracy, in a free country. What about the idea of a conscientious opposer clause? Because there will be people who will say, look, it's my body. I don't want to put this stuff in. What about the idea of someone who has a reason not to want to do it? They should. I'm assuming that with your position, that shouldn't be allowed. But what about the idea that someone says, it's my body. I don't want to put that stuff into it. At the end of the day, I don't think we can force people to be vaccinated, but I also don't think you have the right to choose not to be vaccinated and then put other people at risk. So you can choose not to be vaccinated, but then perhaps that limits some of your other choices, like where you work, where you travel, those types of things. So, you know, there's a balance between the rights of individuals and the rights of the community at large. And I, I expect it's a very small number, quite honestly, but what about the idea we keep hearing people say, well, what about people with allergies or with some medical reason why they couldn't have a vaccine? Um, what do you do with that? And again, I expect the number is not huge, but what happens with them? Yeah, that, like you said, that's an extremely small number of people. You would have to have a history of anaphylaxis to one of the agents in the vaccine. And the number of people that really have that, the estimates are somewhere around one in four million people. You know, I think that's really tiny numbers, and I think those people could be dealt with differently. Um, but the, really, the bigger issue is pushing that number up with high, and, and we need to get the people who aren't vaccinated vaccinated. And I think at this point, the people who want to be vaccinated probably have come forward, and now we're going to need to start to see some more incentives to get that last 20% of people across the line. And again, about the the small percentage of people who for some sort of health reason couldn't, um, back probably a year ago now when municipalities, when cities started putting in their masking rules, I think every single city that I ever found uh, said, if you have a health reason why you can't wear a mask, you don't have to wear one. You simply have to say to someone, I have a health exemption and I don't have to wear it. And the people by the bylaws were not permitted to ask you what was your health exemption because that's a private medical issue. What if someone, would the same apply here? What if someone says, I have a health exemption, would you have the, would we legally have the right to say, prove that you have an exemption, prove that you have a medical problem? I'm certainly not a legal expert, so I, I couldn't answer that exactly. Um, but I do think when we're talking about the health health workforce, obviously these things would need to be implemented through the various health authorities, and they would have to work with their teams to determine what sort of documentation needed to be provided by their staff uh, to, to move forward if this was something that was happening. Yeah, and, and again, I mean, it's I know you're not a legal expert, and I, I'm not going to be asking you that, but it, do we know if there have been any challenges to this? I'm assuming somewhere someone has challenged the idea that they have to receive a vaccination for something. Do we know what the courts have done with that? There has been challenges in the past around things like the influenza vaccine. But again, I think the difference here is the risk to the population. And I think when things move forward, you know, when we're looking at balancing individual versus community rights, those are the types of things the courts weigh. Uh, and I think it's even when we've seen a lot of these public health restrictions, lockdowns, et cetera, that's always the balance is what is best for the group versus best for the individual. And I think that's why you're seeing uh, a moving target on some of these things as people try to work out what is a reasonable balance between the rights of individuals and the rights of the broader community. 
It's such a fascinating one. And I'm so glad you just mentioned influenza. I had forgotten this, but what about that? Because we know that last year or, or la- during the last flu season, influenza essentially vanished in this country, whether it was because we were all quarantined or wearing masks or keeping our distance, whatever the reason was. Could you see a time coming when we would ask for the same mandatory vaccination for influenza for those who might be working with an elderly population in nursing homes or something else? Because, you know, we, we know in normal years, the flu will kill a lot of people. Oh, absolutely. Um, it is a major issue. And again, I do think there is a moral imperative for healthcare workers to do whatever they can to protect the people they care for. Um, and, and I think this pandemic is probably going to create a lot of future conversations about the very thing you and I have been talking about, which is that balance between the rights of individuals versus the rights of the community. And I don't doubt that we'll be seeing more conversations about this when it comes to influenza. It is a, it is a fascinating topic. I guarantee you're right. I think there's going to be an awful lot of conversations and people's sticking their heels in and digging in on one side or the other. Uh, Dr. Catherine Smart, the incoming president of the Canadian Medical Association. Really appreciate the time today. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.